Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. If you are a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash Willosophy, and we are currently uh, aiming to get to $5,000 in contributions, this is a crowdfunded independent media podcast. So basically what that means is the reason I can pay Podcast Mike to put it all together, the reason that I can pay James Fosdyke to do all his brilliant original art is by your contributions. And you can contribute subscribe crowdfund this show by going to patreon.com slash philosophy if we get up to five thousand dollars per month in contributions we can afford to do two episodes per week at the moment we're about four and a half grand and so we've been doing the occasional catch-up episode so basically how it'll work is there is a brand new episode on a monday or sunday for patreon subscribers ad free and then hopefully we if we get up to five thousand per month and while we're at five thousand per month um, and we have some actually some other targets in there as well for some other projects we'd love to be able to fund. But at the moment, our first one is $5,000 per month, and that will be two podcasts per week, Monday and Friday, Sunday and Thursday for Patreon subscribers. Uh, and that will be a brand new episode with a brand new philosophy guest on a Sunday, Monday, and then a catch-up episode with a previous philosophy guest on a Thursday, Friday. The catch-up episodes, we put a couple out over the last month, we figure we're pretty close, so we should put out a couple, but we can't do them weekly at the moment. We can't quite afford to do that. But there's a brilliant episode just from last week with Jen Kirkman, who's one of my favorite comedians in the world, and great to have a catch up with Jen. She's a regular on one of my other podcasts, Fofop. And in fact, if you want to learn about all the podcasts that I do, you can go to tofop.com. Tofop, Fofop, Two Guys, One Cup, and Willosophy. That is the home, tofop.com, T O F O P. Dot com. All James Fosdyke's brilliant artwork that he does for all the podcasts is also up there for you guys to check out. So uh, we're going to try to get to 5,000. And if we can get to 5,000, we'll do those catch-up episodes regularly. There's another great one with Celia Bacola. She's in Melbourne in the middle of a lockdown. And if you're not in Melbourne, firstly, if you are in Melbourne, a big shout out to all my Melbourne friends who are currently you know, in Australia at least, doing the pandemic as hard as anyone is. And I think, uh, you know, I just want you guys to know that we're thinking about you. And I certainly know that I've been trying to live my life as if I've been living in Melbourne because I think that is the safe and respectful thing to do until we have a vaccine for this terrible virus that is going around the world. The best way we can protect ourselves from it is to be sensible about the way that we live. Wear a mask if you're going out in public, you know, socially distance, use your hand sanitizer, do all those things. Even if you feel like you're living in a state where you're not going to have coronavirus as part of your life, you're not going to have COVID as part of your life. Well, the best way to keep it is not part of your life. The best way to have 30,000 people at the football, the best way to be able to go to the beach and the shops is to continue to live as is, as if you have the virus and everyone you know has the virus. And if you live like that, the quicker we're going to get back to doing things as normal. Um, anyway, uh, thank you very much for being supportive of this show during this time. And today's guest, well, I think you're absolutely going to love this episode. So Matthew Hayden, people will know. He's an Australian cricketer. He played over 100 tests. He's one of the greatest cricketers of all time. He averaged over 50, which puts you in the elite of anyone who's ever batted in the game of cricket, particularly if you've ended up playing over 100 test matches. And at one stage, he held the highest score ever in test match cricket, 380, still the highest score by any Australian ever in the history of cricket, Matthew Hayden. And... Uh, 
Back in 2000, 2001, he wasn't going that well. He played about 13 tests for Australia. Um, I haven't uh, looked up his Wikipedia page, so I'm just going from my memory here, but about 13 or 14 tests for Australia. And he was averaging maybe about 25, which is not quite enough. And I was from Victoria, and there was another opening batsman by the name of Matthew Elliott, and I thought he should be getting picked for Australia. But Matthew Hayden kept making a lot of runs in the Sheffield Shield. If people don't follow cricket, the Sheffield Shield is the state competition and he just kept making more and more and more and more runs. And so there was a big tour of India and Australia traditionally find it very tough to go to India and bat. And Matthew Hayden got picked for that tour. And I said on radio with my good friend Adam Spencer that they should have picked a bag of sand because at least a bag of sand wouldn't dangle its bat outside off stump and get caught in the slips all the time. Matthew Hayden played three tests in India. He averaged 104. It was one of the greatest individual performances any cricketer has ever done on tour for Australia, but particularly in India. And he made me look ridiculous. So back in the day, there was a little band from America called Outcast, and they had a song called I'm Sorry, Miss Jackson. And back in the days when you couldn't even get a uh, track to uh, do a parody song over the top of. Those sort of things are very available these days. But we just took a few bits of the instrumental from that, looped them around, did one take, no, uh, you know, sort of voice modulator, nothing to make us sound good. But Adam Spencer and I did a little song that I came up with, the idea of while jogging on the beach at Bondo Beach called I'm Sorry, Matt Hayden. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get podcast mic to drop in right now my little apology song that I wrote to Matthew Hayden in 2001 after his incredible tour of India. Yeah, this one right here goes out to Matty Hayden. It's mama, mama's mama, mama's mama's mama. And it goes out to VVS Laxman and VVVS Laxman and VVVS SSSS Laxman and VVS SSSS Laxman's mama's mama. And his mama. Yeah, it goes a little like this. Say that you were crap, apologize, saying you could never bat. Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. You Scott Centris with some giant hits, more much better than a Michael Kaskovitz. Matthew Hayden, he's got it going on. Sexy shape haircut, forearms are oh so strong. There's no way thing, he just can't score a run. You're in the green baggy, Matty, forever. Forever? Forever, forever, forever. 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 Ten times out of nine, you score the big runs in record time. Hit a massive sixes and fours, pissing all over the brothers' war. It's like hearing some giant church bell ring as you inspect coverage and sing. You know, call me a madman. I think we're down a Brisbane-born Brabant, you know? We think you're better than Tendulka. Tendulka? Uka? Uka, 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 Uka. We always have, Matty. We think you're right. We've loved you. Never seen a bad word about you, man. Bring it on. Sorry, Matt Hayden. Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. You make all the fans shout Gloria. Could you please move to Victoria? Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. You have led a team of winners. Pity Gilly can't play against the spinners. Sorry, Matt Hayden, you are for real. 
Nazis from the front board says you're not a f***ing arsey. So, despite the fact that I said that Matthew Hayden uh, should not be picked and they should instead pick a bucket of sand, and despite the fact that I then wrote a song called I'm Sorry Matt Hayden that got played quite a lot, uh, Matthew Hayden, it turns out, has a new podcast and it's called Dishy and it's all about uh, his passion for food but also talking to other people about their life through the prism of food. And he invited me on his show, which I thought was incredibly generous considering that I backed him out all those years ago. And we got on incredibly well at his podcast and I asked him to do my show and he was very generous to uh, take some time out of his incredibly busy schedule to come and have a chat with me and a very long and involved and super interesting chat with me and not that much about cricket. I would have liked more of it to be about cricket to be honest because I love cricket and to be honest if I'd asked all the questions that I wanted to ask about the game of cricket this episode would be going for about seven and a half hours but Instead, it goes for nearly two hours and probably only a quarter of it, maybe even less, is about the game of cricket. So much of it is about his other passions in life and the way he views the world and what his philosophy is and how that has guided him through the world. So it was an incredible pleasure to have this conversation with Matthew Hayden. And uh, look, there's so much in this that I think you're absolutely going to love, but particularly towards the end, when Matthew talks about his passion around Indigenous Australia and the work that he is doing to encourage Indigenous kids into, you know, more productive and exciting and supported pathways. All I would say is after this, if you only know Matthew Hayden, the cricketer, make sure that you look him up, you follow everything that he is doing in the world of commentary, in the world of business, in the world of social activism and, uh, you know, really explore that side of Matthew Hayden and that's what we get to do on the show here today so it was a great pleasure to have him on I really hope you enjoy this episode uh, once again hit us up on the Patreon page patreon.com slash philosophy you can join for as little as a dollar well a US dollar per month uh, to help this podcast come out regularly thank you very much for listening and I really think you're going to enjoy this episode with Matty And welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Very excited about today's episode. Uh, I really genuinely am excited. It's the first time I've done an episode. We'll get to this in a second uh, with a guest. I'm staring at today's guest, but also behind today's guest, he's positioned himself so there's a picture of himself also behind him. So I am looking not only at a picture of him, but him on the screen. This is how the show starts. I ask the guest who they are. So who are you, guest? Yeah, Haydos um, is my name. Uh, but that's a bit unfair, actually, Will, because behind me is also a photo of my son, Josh. So we got, um, he's, he's sitting, he's sort of cradling my neck. Um, but mate, my office is a very personal space, as you can see. Basically, it's full of memorabilia because I can give myself a pat on the back every time <laughs> I walk around the rooms. No, it's, you know, it's, my office is a space uh, on two and a half acres right next to my house, which is also on two and a half acres. So 
I have a very stressful walk to work past my orchard and my, all my animals, um, most of which I feed on a daily basis and get nothing back in return. Um, but just that pure love of being able to be free up here in the southeast corner is, is unreal. And, yeah, all my walls are full of... Well, I should probably just take you around. Like, I should just, you know, show you. I would love you. that, mate. That's take me just, around. Just about... Not, not just about me. See, there's, there's my little mate, Justin Langer, there, double impact. Some of my favourite sayings, uh, I don't know if you can see that one, a person who never made a mistake, never tried anything new, Albert Einstein, who could argue with him? Uh, another one just which I've got in Byron Bay, I think, just on some random little stall. Some people want it to happen, some wish it would happen, others would make it happen. Uh, and my favourite, Socrates, I don't know if you can see that one. Um, or is it there? Up in the top corner. I'm the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is I know nothing. <laughs> I love that because, uh, you know, for me, for me, you just don't know. You, you can pretend you know. You think you might know, but you actually have no idea. That's a really fascinating one to me, mate, because you know this, the, the general conceit of this show is that I ask people if they have a personal philosophy of some kind, and you may have one that is external to the ones that you have on your walls, but can we start with that idea of knowing something but knowing that it is a little unknowable because this to me gets to the real heart of what's going on in life. And I imagine as a professional sports person, it's also part of your very DNA and makeup because you've got to pretend like you know what you're doing and yet you must be (laughs) constantly riddled by doubts that you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, no, very good. Very true. Um, Look, probably at the very core of of, uh, my life is my faith and can there be anything that's more unknown than that? Um, you know, the fact is that I do believe in God um, and I do believe that there is a higher purpose for what I do, um, how that integrates into community and into, you know, any kind of uh, environment that I go into. I'm, I'm always aware, very aware of that. Um, but it's the greatest unknown of all time because it's not like, you know, I've sat down and gone, hey, Hey JC, what's doing, brother? Like, you want a cup? Of, you want a cup of coffee? Uh, oh, white and one. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I mean, only I guess only in my very deepest uh, moments where intuition is is at its peak and it's quiet um, and it's reflective. Oftentimes, on for me, on the water, um, you know, being so passionate. Um, uh, in any area, like whether I'm on it, in it, or around it, water is always a you know great source of of strength. And in those moments, you know, like I suppose you you kind of just reach out, but still, there's a great question mark, you know, as that as that goes into the abyss, and there's not much that comes back in return, other than a deep sense of knowing that if you know one thing, and that is that you're okay. Um, well, I mean, I assume if, I, if you're not makes, okay, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> it makes sense, mate, that you're communing, uh, you know, with the big fella out on the water because, you know, Jesus was also a fisherman. It's a good place to have something in common <laughs> and uh, get in that connection. But where did the faith come from? Was it Were you raised religious or was it something that you came to yourself, mm. your faith? It's both. Um, I was raised religious. Um, then I went to the second R and that's rebellious. Um 
and then I went probably to the third phase and that's just a, like I just explained it's just a deep sense of knowing that at my core there's an important element of that and it'll be described it's not just about Christianity either Will it's you know as I travel the world I was always curious so I took my mum and dad for the first time over to India uh, 83 and 84 they are respectively we did five ports in 13 days um including one trip that had a five-hour trip out from Delhi to Agra, um, you know, to see the Taj Mahal. And, and it was just a huge, big, you know, workload for to, for two very capable elderly uh, individuals. Um, but that great sense of, of the mix of cultures, I, I would wonder how they handle it, you know, like because in, in the Catholic faith, you know, you have a very strong sense of belief in one God, one purpose, that's it. Um, yet you travel on the streets of India and you'll have a mosque, you know, a, a you know, Hindu temple, uh, various churches, all on the one intersection. And so there's this great mix of faith and, and so therefore kind of goes to, to what I believe as well. And that's this higher purpose around well, what are your belief structures I mean, the Quran, for example, is an undoubtedly beautiful piece of writing, as is the Bible. But, you know, what, what underwrites or underpins those philosophies um, is a great sense of, of uh, commitment to bettering humanity, either individually or, or collectively as an organisation. And that's where religions really have fundamentally got themselves in, in deep trouble as well because of that positioning they have within the, the one faith. So... You know, for some of that's travel, and, and as I was explaining with my mum and dad, it was just so nice to sort of see them mixing with a whole bunch of people, you know, like Tamilian people in Tamil Nadu who, um, you know, when I was playing for CSK, I'd regularly go around to their house and, you know, there would be there would be moments when, you, you know, you'd be involved in some sort of puja that, you know, was against what you believe from a uh, spiritual point of view, but you can never doubt it because it's just such a wholesome, full and rich part of a whole other culture's way of life that it then becomes you take that on yourself as well as something that's really special and sacred. Yeah, so so it's not it's a long answer, Will. Um, you'll probably find that a bit in this podcast because I love talking about philosophy. It's something I'm passionate about. Well, mate, it's a it's a long podcast, so that's fine. Long answers are totally <laughs> appropriate. But uh, I, I did your podcast, Dishy, which we'll get to later, which, fair to say, it's a little bit shorter, so you get about three yeah. of my long-winded answers in an episode. So we've got a little bit more time. So when you talk about the idea, and this is something that's always fascinated me because I'm not a person who has that same you know style of faith that you have, but I certainly have a real interest in, you know, the commonality of faiths, you know, the the intrinsic points that are at the heart of most religions, most faiths mm. seem to be certain human principles. And for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more interested in what those principles are than perhaps, you know, a believer in that they do come from a higher power. But it, it, uh, the fact that I don't believe they come from a higher power doesn't mean that I don't think the rules and regulations are bad rules and regulations. You know, every religion has some version of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it just is one of those things that seems like just pretty good common sense in a general way, you know. So what are the core principles? I'd, I'd, I'd love to get down a little bit more into the what is it that you see in your faith are the principles that you try to lead in mm. your life? Um, well, I think 
a lot of it comes in, from the Catholic um, faith in a sense of uh, in a sense of what what Jesus uh, spoke about in the Beatitudes. And they're a very short sort of passage of of themes. And look, I, I'm not going to uh, say that I know all of them off by heart, but just to give you a taste for what they are, um, it's the basic principles of rather than, you know, where the Ten Commandments came from, the thou shalt not, it basically turns those around and goes, guys, if you really want to sort of, you know, live a Christian life, these are the things that you really need to look at doing. So is it any surprise that, you know, one of them basically says, you know what, treat each other nicely, you know? You do unto others as what you'd have done done unto yourself. Like that's sort of a basic philosophy that's got a really simple mantra about it. Some are more complicated, like happier the poor in spirit. Well, poor in spirit, you know, is a, is a difficult uh, theme to get onto because I feel that I've got... Um, such a happy spirit and such a um, a strong sense of purpose uh, around my spirit that I've got more than enough to share to you know hundreds and thousands of people all over the world. So I think though what he's sort of what 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 that's sort of saying though is that you know when you see I look at and reflect upon again India being a deep source of of uh, spirituality when I see the humility of someone in the streets of India with very little, almost nothing, as to what you'd see as a, a, a modern con, if you like. And then they just light up with this enormous smile that says, welcome, you know, or wanakam, or, you know, any of the languages that, they, that, 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 that Indian culture speak. And they just invite you into their, their life, which is so simple. And yet it seems so complete as well, all in the same moment. And I just think that sort of, that poor, poorness of spirit is, is reflected in that moment. Someone that's living a simple life that seems to be, you know, rich in time because the more complicated your life gets, you know, the more, the more time you spend on doing things that are not that important to your own growth and development and it's an inviting it's an inclusiveness it's a it's a sense of purpose that and a commitment to just you know living life uh to the fullest in in spite of whatever circumstances that individual is is being embedded in um i mean they they will they will look at that and go that's the principle of karma um it was something again which i do believe in you know if you're good to people Somewhere along the lines, they'll be good to you as well. It seems so basic, and I, and I watch my dad every Sunday at church give a lot more money in the second collection than what we could afford as a family. And I asked him on the way home, I said, Dad, why do you do that? You know, we can't afford that. I mean, I'd like a brand-new granite cricket bat. That'd be good. <laughs> he said, son, it's not, I don't give to get back, but I just know that somewhere, somehow, it'll be returned and it won't necessarily be through any face. I don't have any expectations. And I, and I look at that and I think, you know, at 84 years old now, there's a calmness and a stillness and a, and a contentedness. Uh, there's a peacefulness around him. Um, and there's a deep commitment to his, to his partner that's been married almost 60 years uh, in mum. And they just appreciate, you know, with with a deep sense of gratitude what they have 
And I guess in many ways that sort of, for me, summarises the Beatitudes in in the Catholic faith. It it's It's just commitment to the principles of doing the right thing by other people, um, sharing and believing in, in, in all of the great scriptures that have been written. Um, you know, they're not just like you, you and I doing a podcast here now. I wonder whether that'll be remembered in 2000 years time. You know, these words have, have spanned, you know, enormous centuries of, of time. And, and so, you know, they're powerful, they're powerful. Uh, you talk about a fisherman, you know, Peter, in which the, the church was built on, was that fisherman. He was the rock of the church, but he was also a rock of a human being who was a great, he was a great bloody uh, chunk of a bloke. Um, and he was also, he was also a bloke that made a truckload of mistakes. You know, and, and I believe that, you know, in, in life, you need to not only forgive yourself, um, but you also need to forgive other people because... Yeah, you walk around with a chip on your shoulder. And I'm a bloke, by the way, who loves to prove people wrong, Will. Like, the greatest motivation for me is if if Will Anderson was to tell me, like you did one time, that I couldn't bat, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out of my way, bud, to make sure that you eat, eat your words. <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. I'm joking, but I'm not joking. You know, like, it's, it's a great motivator. Eat your words and have to technically write a song about it in my case. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, that, I think that forgiveness element to life is something that, you know, is also one of the great, you know, parts of, of, a, of a religious life as well or a spiritual life. Okay, so it, there's so much there to unpack. Um, I, I think we'll, we'll obviously get to cricket and what motivated you as a professional sports person, but mm. a couple of things that have come up already, uh, family and how important family clearly is in your life mm. like you've spoken about the connection and the responsibility and these things that you've learned from your parents so i'd love to ask you know about your relationship to the idea of family and where you place it in your life in mm. importance yeah look um i mean central to my life if you were to go um you know right next to faith central to my life is family I think, you know, everyone's got this notion that it has to be the perfect family. Like, it, it's just, there's no such a thing. Meaning that, you, you know, when you're committed to family, you, you, you commit to, it's like the vows at your wedding. You know, it is, it is in the good and it is in the bad. And there's a lot of both. And so on balance, you have to go, well, you know what, like, We've got to make this work. There's got to be a great sense of making it work, making the effort. Because in any, like, I don't know, you know, Will, you know, with children, like, I look at my kids, mate, and I, I mean, I'm a bit ahead of you in the game. I've got a 17, 18-year-old daughter, and then I've got two sons, 15 and 13, and you just can't get any three more different individuals. You know, so there has to be a great celebration in the differences of of family members in order for you to then accept, understand, and then move forward on how it is that you can, you know, build, you know, really solid relationships um, on trust and, and respect um, and on the basic principles that, you know, any, any organisation or, or family run on uh, uncompromisingly. Um, 
but there's also this great sense of of forgiveness and this this compassion that has to happen at family level because it's mate, it's a really tough world. I, I mean, I look at my own childhood. I don't know about you. I look at my own childhood and go, damn, that was simple. You know, mm. I live I live seven miles out of town. Um, for the for the first few years of my life, I had you know extended family. My my granddad and grandma living on the property. We would grow our own vegetables. Um, we were we were peanut farmers, and we had some dairy at that time. Very young in the piece, um, and I just you know my afternoons were playing cricket with my brother on a ten acre house block, and if we weren't doing that, I was uh, shooting. I'd go I'd get up in the car and this we had two farm cars and old two old Volkswagens which had more dents on it than than you can possibly imagine in fact when I was eight I remember my brother's five years older I remember my brother and two of his friends sitting on the roof of the Volkswagen and I had to build special like uh, foot pedals because I couldn't reach and I was driving at night and we were spotlighting for for hares and rabbits I mean it was just the greatest childhood, like so simple, but just so fun. I mean, we and we just developed all these great skills. You know, like I said, we were driving. I was driving when I was seven and eight. Then I'd go, you know, on all the big. Tra- we had three tractors at the property. Um, you know, ranging up to that sort of one hundred and twenty-five horsepower class. You know, I was harvesting. I was ploughing. I was branding. You know, I was droving. I mean, it was, and then you know, because Mum was a teacher. Um, she was a music and um, speech and drama teacher. She has got a letters in, in both. Um, you know, I was on stage um, performing, you know, at a really young age. Or, you know, we'd travel to the coast and and our holidays, because of mum school holidays, would be just all at the beach, you know. So we we're fishing and... Oh man, I just had such a great childhood. I had a couple of uncles who were, who were Catholic priests as well on my my brothers on my mum's side, um, and they were typical big, tough Australian men that built a lot of the churches up around the archdiocese of of Cairns. All loved fishing, all loved hunting. You know, so, so we'd go to these crazy locations. You know, based based up through the the Cape York. And we just had this abundance of skill sets that we could explore Australia. And, and, um, and, and so, you know, our childhood was really simple. And yet, you know, I look at our kids' lives now and, and it's thankfully, you know, our kids have got, you know, a lot of the skill sets that, that we've passed on. But, you know, there's a lot of distractions. You know, there's, there's phones and, you, you know, you barely, barely can find a textbook in the house anymore. You go to a resource to try and help your son out. So, mate, get your textbook out, and he starts giggling at you. <laughs> it's all, all on OneNote, and you know, all online, all up in the cloud, and you know, there's not much sort of contact. Um, so, it's almost like polar opposites. Like, like here we are as an example, communicating down the line, recording a podcast, and we've never met. Um, we will one day, but we never have. So, you know, it's just different times and they're challenging for, for kids that are trying to kind of evolve with their own maturity and their sense of identity and their vision, you know, in a world that's changing, you know, every every three minutes, it seems, there's a different set of landscapes for them. Whereas, you know, the sky was blue and the coastline was clear when we were kids. We, we just had, 
a very simple existence, I feel. And not overwhelmed by the big issues in the world is what I remember. You know, the idea of going on a summer holiday and, I mean, we had in in a lot of ways, even though I was in East Gippsland in Victoria, very similar childhoods, I think, you know. Yeah. Very similar-ish eras and definitely... You know, that idea, I grew up on a dairy farm, you know, like the idea of playing cricket, you know, backyard tests with my brothers for like, you know, four, five, six hours at a time. That was what you did to amuse yourself. You know, your parents just went, go outdoors. We've got things to do. Go and make your own fun. And we weren't overwhelmed by this idea of, I imagine if you're that age now with, you know, this global pandemic, with the issues around climate, all these things that you're constantly hearing about in the news, the future seems to be very doom and gloom. So when you are talking to your kids Mm. about what their future is going to be, how do you advise them, comfort them, give them the support they need about, you know, having optimism around their future? Well, I think firstly, it's just to try and find areas of their life that they love, you know, like... The expectation for my boys in particular is, oh, you know, they're going to be superstar cricketers. Well, well, no, that's not how it works. You know, like there's so many circumstances that that went into me evolving as a cricketer that 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 you know you could, I could never put on those conditions. Some of which we've mentioned, um, you know, right right at the head of the show um, around you know diff- completely different way of life. Um, but they love certain things. Like my my youngest, for example, Tommy, he loves fishing. You know, just he's passionate about it. He's really observant. Like he'll get up in the mangroves and and on the sort of intertidal flats, and he'll just be there for hours, chasing, hunting, observing. Just, just he just loves it. My middle boy loves surfing. You know, he just you know we have a place over at North Trebrake Island. That's the majority of the time that we spend is is on that island as holidays. Um, but even, you know, during COVID times when there was shutdowns of school and you've got the internet, well, you know, we, we tried, we tried um, uh, during that period when various stages of lockdown were released to just spend as much time as, as you can because it's, man, any time you're involving yourself in nature is a bloody good thing. You know, at the backyard, we've got dolphins playing, whales, um, koalas up in the trees, kookaburras. It's just, I feel like I should be... I feel like a liar, actually, when I'm explaining that to my friends. You know, like, oh, what are you doing today? But, yeah, I'm just out here. Oh, shit, there's a koala. You hear him go, oh, what a load of shit. You know, it's just, it's, but, you know, it makes you feel good. And, and, and it ma- I know that for our kids, it makes them also, you know, just really, you know, understand the importance of that in their life. Um, my daughter's a great all-rounder, you know. She really enjoys a lot of different activities. Um, she's a very good uh, athlete. Um, you know, from from running to to cycle, triathlon was a sport and javelin, um, but pretty much anything she's had you know honours in anything to do with sport she's 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 very capable at. And my wife loves to run, you know, and loves to sort of stay fit and active and healthy and you know those, those sort of mantras in your life as well or anchors actually more than more than mantras like you you start your day with an attitude changer. Um, you know, where you, you shift into a, a breathing pattern, elevated breathing pattern because you're going for a run or going for a swim or going for a surf. There's a great benefit mentally to that. It's just like a release that happens. And, uh, you know, I think all of us, so I really, you know, as a, as a mentor to the kids, it's a really important part to just dig what you love doing. You know, just, just sink into it. 
you know, lean into it if you like. Because the moment you start sort of resisting those loves in your life, they it doesn't get you anywhere. Um, and for me, that that outdoor way of life was always something that you know I, I lent into. And thankfully, you know, had a mum and dad that also encouraged me to do that. Um, because it, you know, where, where it led to was that ultimately I had this great relationship with, with not only my own athletic ability, but a, a great relationship to every destination that I went to. You know, like I'd travel the great, uh, the great destinations like South Africa, for example, just off the top of my head. And it was embarrassing, you know, when I'd arrive, you know, as a tourist there because I'd have a couple of the local boys come out to the airport pick me up, full quivers of boards on the top of the car, and we'd just be gone. I'd sort of quick go, Buck, what time's training? <laughs> and as long as, <laughs> as long as I was sort of back in time to get prepared and, and, you know, sink into that, I was on. You know, so what a great gift being capable in the water to just explore some of the coastlines of, of Durban um, and other great venues as well around Africa. So as a surfer, was there a benefit to your cricket playing because I can imagine in some sports they you know they'd be very paranoid about their sports people going off and doing <laughs> other risky activities you know in between when they're meant to be training and playing mm. but was surfing in particular something that you not only got a mental benefit but also a physical benefit for your cricket yeah have you have you spent much time in the water I mean is it I love the water I have bad hips so I can't get up on a surfboard but I love the I love the ocean yeah I mean oh. I mean, there's just a great release in the ocean. I mean, even just swimming. Um, I mean, I, I've for a while after cricket, I, I was doing triathlons, and I realised that my best event was was swimming in in the three codes, which meant that I spent my entire race getting beaten. <laughs> so I'd be powering out of the water, and I'd be like, head up, like, how good am I? And then I'd jump on the bike, and I wasn't bad on the bike, um, but this rig and chassis is not designed to run fast over a long period of time. In fact, I spent my entire life training to run fast, not forever. <laughs> if I wanted to be a marathon runner, mate, I wouldn't have been a cricketer. So, um, yeah, like that feeling, that sense of being on the, on the water is, is something that's, um, you know, has been a great... Uh, it's just been a great release, and the benefits of that are enormous, obviously, um, because you know they just they they put you in a mindset where you you're just open for the for the day. I mean, I've never got out of the water feeling worse than when I got into it, and and easily my favourite day of Test cricket, I did both. So I got a hundred at. Um, in, in the Durban test match in, I don't know when it was, 2000 and maybe four or five, somewhere around there when we toured. Got a hundred, typical of, of Durban, a bit like Brizzy, when it rains, it just chucks it down. It makes a good job. There's nothing worse as a cricketer when you get fairies piss and all of a sudden you're like loitering with bad intent around the ground and you're on, you're off. Nah, Durban, boom. Brisbane, you can see it. Big clouds roll in from the west. Enormous blanket starts to then, you know, cloak the ground and it just chucks it down. The game's over. So, of course, I'd realised this and um, the moment that they went full-time hooter, that's the day, it was about 2.30 in the afternoon and the ground in Durban is about, well, it's probably 2K, I reckon, from, 
from the um, from from the hotel, which is right on the water, right on New Pier, where they used to hold the old Gunston 500. And I've got this brand new board waiting because I'd hooked up with a guy that you know we'd been mates for years since the first tour there in um, in '94, and he'd always like shaped me two or three boards, and it was on the surf was pumping. So I'm out there, ran home because I knew they were going to all mess around the dressing room, rang home, got leave and took off in the water and, and I'm surfing for at least two and a half hours, maybe even more, three hours um, before um, sunset. Anyway, after about an hour in the water, you can hit, see these sort of two two local boys sort of pointing at me, looking at me and finally one of them worked up the courage to say, mate, do, do we know you from somewhere? Like, what, what's your story? I said, oh, I don't know, mate. Oh, you know, I'm just, I'm just loving these surf. It's pumping, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's pumping. He says, uh, yeah. um, you're an Aussie, eh? I said, yeah, from Australia. Yeah. He says, ah, oh, I know now. He says, you're Matt Hayden, aren't you? And I said, yeah, mate. I am. He says, mate, didn't you just get a Test match hundred today? And I said, brother, I'm just, I'm just living the dream. I'm just li- just living the dream. And then I was very sort of smugly, like, you know, pumped my chest out and just sort of, you know, eloquently tried to sort of paddle past them. <laughs> but, you know, that, that was very few times when you got the opportunity, like when we toured up in, um, when we toured up in, in Darwin, we were playing Bangladesh. Um, I think we'd play Bangladesh and Sri Lanka up there, but Mate, it was just it was just bound to go pear shaped for me because the elusive NT Barramundi was was calling hard and any time that I could, there was no way with a lot and I'd had a long history of, of friendships up there as well, because I'd personally travel up there to, to fish the all the estuaries of the north. So I had a chunk of mates that were there that were all like dying to take us all fishing and that's what had happened. So any time that I could up there, it was just fit. cricket always got in the way of a good tour, it must be said. <laughs> <laughs> the moment that I could get, get my little backside out of a hotel uh, and out into the great outdoors in some way, some capacity, mate, I was there with bells on. So tell me, because a lot of people are very interested in like I think, and I, I certainly I am, in what's going through your mind, because it feels to me that, you know, when you're out, you know, fishing, you know, when you're out surfing, you're talking about hours of doing a physical activity, but also where you have time to be thinking, to be contemplating. Mm. You know, I imagine when you're out in the middle of, you know, a, you know, a cricket match batting, you have you, you have to concentrate just on the process of batting, what you're doing there. Whereas I imagine when you're surfing and you're fishing, you have some time in between the activity for contemplation. Am I right or wrong about that? No, as usual, Will, you're wrong. Um. <laughs> <laughs> See, mate, whenever you get a half volley, you always take it, eh? <laughs> um, look, to, look I, say, I say that tongue-in-cheek. But, you know, they're very similar. Um, in, in fact, you know, it's, it's, cricket is, is, is a game of immense duration um, and you're often out of play, you know, so you've got a lot of time. I mean, in essence, the, the trick to cricket mentally to be able to be uh, resourceful enough to, to bat a long period of time, which fortunately um, was the case 
um, for us as a team in particular, we'd often just bat once and bat long and, and do a great job of it. Um, but you just you only have that split second to really focus and that's it. And then the rest of the time you've, you've got to find a way to let to, to not let the, the genie out of the bottle, meaning that your mind is such a powerful thing and, and it will always go to the negative. It'll always tell you what you shouldn't be doing. You know what you couldn't couldn't be doing, or 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 just that sort of whole self speak um, will take you down that uh, path. So you have to trick it into going and t- and telling itself the good stuff, um, which means comes to your point around process. So you're thinking about process is just another way of saying you're thinking about the right things. You're thinking about the things that are going to make impact on your decision, and in a cricketer's case, you've got. Point two seconds to, to do so. Surfing and, and, and fishing are not dissimilar, although there's a lot more thinking in, um, in fishing. Like it's a, it's a sport where y- you can do so much right and yet yield nothing, a nothing result. And that's why they call it fishing, not catching. So, <laughs> so, you know, so it's it's a really frustrating sport. And look, some days I must confess I get out of the water and off the boat, and you know we've got several different crafts. Um, my favourite is a six eighty Haynes Hunter that I do, which I've had. I bought with um, Andrew Simons actually after we flipped our boat in '99. We 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 geared up together again. I, I bought it off a Chinese doctor down at um, Runaway Bay. He didn't have a trailer. Um, and Simo and I flanked him. We, we had an indication of the price. And I kind of stood over um, this this guy that was selling it and just said, look, that's a ridiculous price. He gave him a line out of the castle, telling him he's dreaming. Mm. Um, <laughs> anyway, his, his, his price was set. I, I offered what I was Simo and I prepared to pay. And he contemplated it for a moment, and then he came up with this line. He said, okay, but under one condition. I said, mate, what is that with a bit more explorative language? And he said, don't tell my wife. I went, mate, <laughs> <laughs> your secret is, is, is well, and, well and truly secured. So the knocker came down, and Simo and I owned a new boat, um, which I sold to him five years later for the same price that I paid off the Chinese doctor, <laughs> which will give you some indication of the deal that we made. <laughs> Get out, Simo. Here's what we paid for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it's it's really it can be really frustrating and can be really rewarding. All it's a very process driven um, sport, and ultimately it's a terminal sport, meaning that you know you can have everything right. But if you don't have the knot that's attached to something at the terminal end of the tackle, the hook, you're out of the game and, and it's a game changer. Surfing, on the other hand, it can also be frustrating because you get significant periods of, of downtime. But I reckon I've, I've, I've breached the gap in terms of that because I think the trick to that is to just get more crafts. You know, so, you know, our, our quiver... Uh, at, at pretty much our entire shed um, is full of different crafts, you know, surf skis, uh, kayaks, stand-up paddle boards, long boards, various short boards. You know, some fishtails. You know, some gun shapes for bigger conditions. Just have more craft, and you'll always find a way to get that 
famous surfing word um, of Stoke. You know, just being out on the water. Like one day I was out in the water at, at the gorge at North Stradbroke and I thought, I saw these two whales coming up during the migration season and I thought, oh, it'd be cool just to sort of like get a little bit close to these things, right? So lo and behold, I didn't have to do anything. I just sort of stood there and all of a sudden I've got this full whale that's, that's and her calf has come underneath my stand-up paddleboard. And I was that in awe of what just happened that I sort of just lost focus and lost my balance and fell off and got, you know, just was plunged into the water. And I came back in. I was with actually a bunch of dads. We were over there for a, just a father and son type, you know, camping um, trip for a couple of days. And I said, did you see that, fellas? And they said, yeah, that was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. It was just like they were right under you, weren't they? I said, mate, they went right under me. Anyway, I went up to the local coffee shop I was ordering a coffee and this couple were there and they were telling this story about, you know, some dude that, you know, this whale fell under. I videoed the whole thing. I said, mate, at the back, I said, excuse me a second, at the back of that video, did the bloke fall off into the water? They said, yeah. They said, that was me. (laughs) 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 What a kook. What a kook. Um, But, you know, these, I suppose what my point is, is that miracles just happen on the water. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, mean, I suppose the worst scenario is the opposite case of that. There's also tragedies that happen on the water and, um, you know, the various shark attacks that have been happening right around the world seem to be a lot more prevalent. Um, and as, as as history is that we, you know, Simo and I, were very close to losing our lives on the bar that day or if even if we weren't, we were very close to losing the, the person that we had out that day. You know, so it's a place of significance as well that... That just commands so much respect, but by the same token, well, it just gives, it just continues to give so much back. So all of the things that you've mentioned have an element of danger wrapped up in them. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, fishing, being in the ocean, they all come with an element of danger. And the mm. fact that you, you know, played, you know, the highest level of cricket in the world, as we've come to tragically find out it, what can be a fatal Mm. Uh, you know, profession, you know, mm. you have a, a very hard cricket ball, you know, coming towards you at incredible speeds. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, were you aware when you played cricket that you were playing something that was, you know, life-threatening, dangerous in that way? Mm. Yeah, I think um, you're aware. You, the short answer is you're aware of the fact that you, you're dangerous, and you're reminded every day. Like we used to have the saying in the in the dressing room that if you had more than four ice bags on your body at any one given point in time, it was time to retire. Um, <laughs> most of those ice bags, though, were from impact injuries, especially sort of in and around areas where you, you didn't have protection, um, and you're just lucky to escape. Like. In in many ways, we've all had that moment where, like Phil Hughes is, you know, bring bringing up that that particular incident. There was a time I got hit right same area, same actually, almost the same thing happened, and it was Shah Bakhtar and Sharjah, and um, it was after one of the greatest sledging battles that I'd had with any one individual um, <laughs> on any cricket field. Shah Bakhtar, um, it was fifty eight degrees. Well, by the way, it was like putting your head into a fan force oven and, you know, enjoy that. And that was just, that was just the surface temperature. That wasn't even the ground temperature. It was so hot, mate. 
Show of Akhtar, though, on the way out, we'd won the toss and batted. He said today, in very colourful language, I'm going to kill you. And I said, mate, terrific, but you've got 18 balls to do it. Because I figured after 18 balls, if there's any human being that can survive that heat, and especially when he pushed off the, the sight screen as he's run up, I thought, good luck to him. He probably deserves a wicket. So, of course, smart ass here decides to do this. So he runs in, he bowls his first ball. I count it down, 17. So you get the picture. <laughs> you get the picture, right? So um, after about the 11th ball, I had to come up with something new because the gag was getting a bit tired and he was getting super frustrated. Man, he had steam coming out of his ears, bless him. Anyway, I thought, right, what do we do? So I went, got it. Venkat, he was an Indian umpire. This is my genius here. India hate Pakistan. Right, gotcha. So, <laughs> so I went up to Venkat and I said, Venny, mate, I give as good as I get. You know, I've, I've got no problem with being sledged because, I, you know, I know that I've, I've really, you know, been that person over the years. But, mate, fair's fair. Like someone surely can't sledge you when they're actually running into bowl. Like there's got to be some sort of <laughs> etiquette amongst the unetiquette. So I went, oh, yes, you're right. <laughs> so he spent the next play stop for like three or four minutes. And Venkat at this stage, who was a very fine off spinner for India, he walked the whole way back, marched Shoa Bakhtar, and he's tuning him the entire way. This little Tamilian chap, you know, like barking orders at him. And I thought... This is just gold, this, because it was an absolute road, flat as a tack this wicket. The only way that I was really going to get out was either knocked out and killed or bowled. So, because he was never going to give me old bear. He was a, <laughs> he was a vindictive little chap. And as I said, the, the dynamics don't need that much of a scrapping to just unleash, unleash its hell. <laughs> so, uh, so about the fifth ball as I'm counting down, he bowls this thunderbolt right into the middle of the wicket and it doesn't get up more than about a foot and a half. So, you know, I, I, I sort of go, I go down on my haunches because my initial reaction is that's really short. And then I get trapped in this awful position as I start to like, you know, just what's that game called where you, you go under like the, um, the pole? Oh, limbo. Limbo. I sort of try and limbo underneath this ball and I realise, shit, now I'm on the ground. I can't – I've got nowhere to go here. So the mm. only thing I could possibly do was just turn my head like that. I just t turned my head to the, to the left towards the wicketkeeper and the ball hit me flush in the back of the skull, at the base of my skull. So I sort of – you know, at this stage, I think it was more ego than anything. Like, I had massive egg on my face. You know, I know I've got four balls to, to go to, to just, you know, get through this onslaught of thunderbolts from Shoabakta. So I get up and I'm seeing the full stars like, you know, the, they do in the cartoons, the Warner Brother cartoons, when Yogi Bear clocks his head on something and you've got the full whistles and stars around your head. And I get up and Shoab's like around me just laughing at me. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so I kind of pull it together and try and think, geez, I've, I've just got to make it at these couple of balls, which I did. You know, I've, I've, I managed to pull myself together after you know a couple of minutes of just being down on my haunches. So I finally get to the last ball, and he bowls it, and he kind of like trips over his spikes, which gives me an opportunity to go up to him and say, 
you want to go off, don't you, Shab? And he's cursing at me. He said, mate, there's no heroes in Test Match Cricket. David Boone said that to me, and he's one of the toughest blokes I've ever played with. There's no hero. No such thing as a hero. You know you want to go off, and I'll be okay with that, you know? <laughs> So, so it was almost like a, I was I was almost like whispering, you know, whispering the thoughts into his ear. But as sure as I as I'm talking today, he calls for the dressing room, and this little boy runs out with this drink. And which came, I, I sort of react immediately as well. And I call for the dressing room and get some gloves, and I follow him off the hallway and say, "Mate, honestly, I, I won't." It's you're not going to embarrass yourself. Like you're a premium fast bowler. It's 58 degrees, and I know you want to go off. <laughs> anyway, he went off. <laughs> oh, it was a classic, classic psychological, like you know, warfare. Um, but in fairness, like, and he didn't come back on the whole match. He was actually cooked. And and I've got to say this to show up as well. After that game. That was a game, I don't know if you remember, Warney got a million wickets. Pakistan looked like they were on the take. Um, they, had they, they just couldn't face Warney. They just got knocked over for fun. And the test match only went two days. Well, I was sick, properly sick for a month and a half after that. I was just, I don't know whether it was the impact of the ball on the base of my skull or, um, or just the extreme heat. I had one beer at the end of play and I realised that was a mistake when I was just speaking Swahili. Mm. Um, and, and look, you know, you know, basically that you're playing a sport where you can, you know, make some mistakes and it can go wrong. I mean, I've got none of my teeth at the front. I've broken hands, eyes, noses, you know, all sorts of stuff. But thankfully, you know, it gives you that joy as well. That pleasure of, of combat is a great thing. Uh, so the, one of the most interesting things about being a batsman, particularly an opening batsman to me, is it's a gee, it's a tough job. Like I, I was a good AFL footballer, but quite a good AFL footballer, and I think the reason was that I was quite determined. And AFL yeah. football doesn't judge you for one mistake. So if I make a mistake early on in a game of football, I have three more quarters to make up for this mistake I made in the first quarter. But often as a, a cricketer, if you make a mistake, you know, you nick it to first slip, that's it. That You're done for the day. That one, You don't mm. get an opportunity later in the day to make up for what you've done. And particularly as an opening batsman, going out, out against the, the freshest bowlers, often in the worst of all conditions, you know, your entire day, the fate of your entire team can be determined by you just making one mistake. It seems like such a cruel way to earn your living. Can you talk to me hmm. a little bit about that? It's perhaps why statistically, though, cricket's quite kind, meaning that you know I've played 103 test matches and I've, I've made 30 test hundreds. So when you do the math on that, let's, let's just even give it the benefit of the doubt that of those 100 test matches, they all only went four days. So that's 400 days of cricket. And of those 400 days, I've only really starred professionally 30 of them. Mm. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, a pretty, that's a pretty sad indictment on the statistical record. I mean, I mean the, Don, the Don, and that's what sets him apart from, from any other player, that you know, statistically he, he, was, he was on the money. I mean, he was just dependable. Um, you know, so I, I suppose you're right in saying that you, you you give you get one chance, but technically it's probably not right either. You know the expression that says that that your uh, 
you often know you're in good form when you nick them. Well, Mark Taylor used that one for about five years as I was sitting in the wings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless him. Um, so, uh, yeah, like, and it's tr- that is true though. Like, you when you think about a play and miss, a genuine play and miss, not 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 a play and miss where something's done extraordinary measures off the wicket or whatever. It's actually a bigger mistake than nicking it. And yet you don't get re- rewarded for it at all. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. You, you get taken out of play. So, and then there's always the benefit, the grey of the benefit of the, of the doubt, um, which is, you know, in the modern age is taken out a lot now with DRS and, and that ability for either both sides to, re- to review decisions. Um, and yet they still there's still enough grey area in all of it. I mean, we as broadcasters on it, just you know, we're just arguing the toss on still what the nuances of the rules look like, and it's almost annoying. Like I'd almost get, I'd almost like it to go back to the old days where you know David Shepherd, um, rest in peace. You know, such a great old character of the game, English gentleman, knows the game well and makes a decision. I'd almost rather just take his call on it. You know, and just get on with it, as opposed to you know, you know, trying to rewrite the wrongs. And there's no end to that debate. It just it goes around and around and around in circles. And and I just feel like you know, part of our game is is in that sort of whole concept of just you know that bit of mystery around it, that 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 chance around it. I, I think is a good space for the game because it brings into play gamesmanship as well. You know, I feel like I'm a better person for, even if I didn't like it, accepting the the umpire's decision. I mean, sometimes it's just not your call right in life. You just got to get on with it. Um, it's a beautiful philosophy of the game, and and it's forgotten largely in modern cricket because of because of you know the the technology that's been brought into it. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know where we're going with that conversation. No, I, but, I mean- I love that. So what you're saying, and I respond to that as well, because I'm, a, as you know, a, a died. Like the fact that I couldn't play cricket has no way uh, taken away from my love of the game. I, I absolutely adore it, all its facets. And I think often when it's reduced to just like a description of the game as a game of right and wrong and skill, it loses actually mm. much of the magic that I love about cricket. So much of it is often about that unfair decision or, as mm. you said, the lesson of having to accept because in life sometimes mm. you will get things go against you regardless of whether, you know, you, you should have or not and your capacity to accept those decisions and recover well, look from at now. them. Look at now, for example, right? Businesses across Australia, small businesses in particular, they, they're just really hurting and it's not their call. Mm. Like this is just not – it's not like this has sort of been something anyone can plan for. It's just from – it doesn't matter what level you look at it, both from an organisational government firstly, you know, organisational level or even just an individual level. This is just one of those times where you've just got to accept the umpire's call and try and work out a way – to be solution based as opposed to you know buying into the problem which is which is very easy to do isn't it because you've just got so much information out there that's that's telling you how it is that you you've got to be careful you've you know there's only so many times that you can hear you know before you enter the water there could be sharks there that that you go geez there could be sharks there you know (laughs) well yeah there's sharks there you know and it's just it's the fate of of your life that 
that you proceed, you know, understanding that there are some them foes that are out there. But, you know, at what point are we going to get to during this period where we go, hey, guys, we just, you know, we understand that we understand and we, we comprehend how it is that we can move forward. But when are we just going to put on the backpack and start marching forward? That I mean, how, how many years is that going to be? Like, and who are those organisations or individuals out there that are actually championing that cause as well? I'm very interested in what lessons you took from your sporting career into the rest of your life. Some athletes can have a hard transition from being a professional sports person into the next stage of their life. How was that for you? When your cricket career finished, how did you feel about, were you optimistic, excited about the next chapter of your life? Were you still um, you know, disappointed that your sporting career was coming to an end? Take us from that moment to where you are now. <laughs> Yeah, um, it, it's a great it, it's a great part of your life. Trying to the word the it's the wrong word for me anyway is retirement. You know, it's it was always going to be a rewirement. You know, just a a time to rewire how it is that I wanted to move forward with all of these as we've been talking about this abundance of of other things that I was so passionate about. Um, life on the water, food, which, you know, we, we haven't even th- 54 minutes into the interview and we haven't even touched on it, but a huge part of my life, um, family and how the role of that played. I, I retired in my backyard here in Brisbane. I, I sort of retired in my head in Sydney after the, after the, uh, the Sydney test match, um, the New Year's test match against South Africa. I, I kind of thought, and it was amplified by, by the Michael Clark and Simon Cattage incident in the dressing room that I kind of just knew that, you know, as a senior player, I, I probably couldn't add a lot of value um, culturally. I mean, from a performance point of view, I knew that I was nowhere near finished. You know, I played uh, three more seasons of IPL cricket, um, two of which were, you know, really good. Um, the third year was probably a bit harder. And then I came out, jumped off the Cricket Australia board um, to stop the, you know, basically say, guys, I'm going to vote with my feet. I'm going to go play big bash league cricket. And I'm going to drag as many of, of the, my supporters and, and the partners that I've been developing um, with my business over those three years. I'm going to take them along with me. You know, companies like Better Home Living, for example, up here in Queensland, still um, sponsors of, of the Brisbane Heat. Um, so, you know, there was so much for me, Will, to do, you know, not to mention every athlete will go, I want to spend more time with my family, which, you know, for me was just was just paramount. I mean, Gracie, our eldest, she hadn't really seen a lot of dad. I mean, I was away 10 months of the year, Will. You know, that was a long, that was a big chunk of my year. And even when I was back, I wasn't really back. Like, I was so focused on on trying to, you know, get the most out of my ability. Um, and I took that really seriously. I, I mean, every time we sort of had a, a, an off-season, I'd come back an Ironman, literally. You know, I'd just, I'd run sand hills, I'd, I'd, I'd do gym, I'd surf. You know, I'd, thankfully our sports trainer, Jock Campbell, who was in Cronulla, would spend a lot of time because we were great mates and he loved a lot of the things that I, I loved and enjoyed as well. So we'd spend quite a lot of time together training. We'd spend half the day training and the other half eating basically. Um, but, but, you know, it just, you know, I had so much that I really wanted to try and achieve. And I think, you know, a big part of life 
we can all be VIPs. Um, we can all have vision. We can all have identity, and we can all have purpose. Um, an athletic, an athlete's life um, is a life where you get all three wrapped up into the one, the one area of your life. You've got great purpose because the fitter you are, you know, the, the longer you can be in the game for. In short, you know, your identity is is obvious. It's known. It's talked about. Um, it's discussed what people do like, what they don't like, but it's your identity, it's your footprint, it's your fingerprint. That's one of the great you know, parts of life that always intrigues me that when you look down at your thumb, it's different to any other person on the planet. It's a, it's a crazy concept that, in essence, means you are that person. Um, and then a vision you know, is something that, for me in the game, for me to be the best player, it meant that I had to change the game because the best players that were playing ahead of me, they they had that nailed. Um, so what was my value add? Otherwise, they'd just keep picking them. You know, so I had to have a vision for the game. It forced you to have that, you know, to take scoring rates was my, you know, my personal quest from, you know, three and over to four and over and, and beyond, you know. To take the game on as an opening batsman was a new concept. Um, and one that, you know, I had to change the whole concept, you know, from it personally. Like when I was playing for Queensland, we were perennial losers, as you know. Firstly, we had to win, um, which we did, thankfully, in 94, 95. But then we were all kind of like middle distance athletes and runners. I mean, it was just a nonsense. I mean, the furthest that I ever run in a cricket game is about 50 metres. So why do I want to run 15K in reps, you know, twice a day so my brother thankfully was you know a real guiding light there because he was doing h human movement studies at queensland uni and he basically rebuilt me as an athlete you know so we went from a middle distance athlete to a power athlete in three years and no one had even thought about that i mean the fact is that it was in my last year michael clark and andrew simons we do these fitness tests every year they just couldn't believe that I beat them in a run of three. You know, you just, you, you timed on that. And so they retrialed just so that they could beat me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was 10 years older than them. You know, so I guess just having that sort of vision around how it is that changing the game um, was a really important part. And nothing's changed, Will. Um, you know, from, from my own um, point of view that, the vision and identity and purpose around, you know, how it is that every day I wake up and live, whether that be through various philanthropic causes that, that, I, that I support um, or even just in my own daily activities within my business where it's, you know, mostly around alignment and strategy, um, you know, that whole sort of concept of stitch in time saves nine, that, that truthful sort of um, place is a, is a vision of mine personally. Um, and I know that it makes impact because because I've seen it fr- from any time that I started to think this way, I've seen it shift and change stuff. Like it's changed the game, you know. It's it's changed the way that you know our family live, and and it's changed even organisationally whom I connect with and how we connect. It's it's such a sick way to live your life. Um, and it was st- it was seeded, I think, just by the strong concept of just knowing yourself, being happy within yourself, um, being committed to, to, to excellence. Um, 
being passionate and and committed. You know, both like just loving every second of just like Wayne Bennett. The best thing that's ever been said to me was when I was struggling, sort of in those seven years where I was just terrible. I, not terrible, but I just, I just, I wasn't being me. I was trying to do something else. And he said, mate, why are you so shit when you play for Australia and yet you're an absolute champion and play for Queensland? What What's the sort of difference? And I said, oh, mate, I, I don't know. I can't give you an answer to that. So I went out to Morton Island um, with Trevor Gilmeister, the axe, the kamikaze squinter from, uh, from Queensland, and uh, another guy, Brownie, that... Uh, did Coast Watch and we went fishing over at Morton and I would have run 30 sandhills I reckon on that day caught a couple of flathead 30 sandhills and probably a whole carton of 4x gold or something to come home but at the end of it um, that that day I knew one thing and that was that I was making too many excuses I was making other people um, the responsibility for my own um, for my own actions. So there was a great moment of uh, transparency where I just started owning my shit, you know, just at every level. It was my fault. I'm going to start with that. So I rang Wayne up and I said, mate, do you want to have a coffee again? He said, yeah, I'd love to. And I said, I've got the answer to your question, Wayne. I, I said, mate, I'm just making excuses and I'm tired of it. And he said, well, mate, here's my advice. He says, go away from this. And he says, don't get bitter, just get better. And anyone that sort of like crossed my path from that point on, I just went, you know what? You've got your opinion on that, but I'm going to learn from that, make it my own, and then reinvent the next stage of what that looks like. I mean, it's a short way of saying that just tell me I can't do something. <laughs> I'll, prove, I'll prove you wrong, basically. Um, but in a less egotistical sense, it's, it's more just coming to terms with who you are, how it is that you're going to process it, making it your fault, you know, trying to work out and work through ways that you can just own it and be a part of the solution rather than buying into the problem all the time. Has that been something that you've also used in your post-cricket life? Yeah, I don't – it's it's interesting when you talk to, to athletes and um, maybe we're on our, on our own in this way in some ways because, I mean, I mean, as a comedian, Will, you, you don't have to be young and fit and, you know, you could be 50 tonne. As long as you've got a heartbeat and, and a microphone, you're away. Um you know, athletes, you can only do what you do until you lose your athletic edge, and that's not long. Um, you know, MS Dhoni, for example, has just retired, you know, in the last couple of days from international cricket, and he's a genius, you know. Like, he's – we all have to do our own stuff eventually. Um, but the one thing that remains consistent is, is your mindset and how it is that you can – um, you know, communicate that mindset as, as what we're doing here now is, is, is our kind of intellectual property and our value because but the lessons in sport are amplified by the pressure and, and diamonds are made under that. They're, they're everyone, I met, ran into this fisherman, I always learn a lot from fishermen. I ran into this bloke over at Stratty and we became really good friends. He was a, a, a crab fisherman. He used to do spanner crabs and, and 
outside uh, in the open water and inside he used to do sand crabs. And I said to him one day, I said, mate, you've been around doing this for like 20-odd years. He said, well, you know, what's your point of difference? And he said, you know what, Matty, I've seen so many fishermen come and go from these waters. You know, they buy up their massive quotas and they get those quotas, but then the next year they come back, they expect the same or more quotas because they're greedy, and then they can't get it, and then they fall off the perch. They said, I'm here because I catch fish when no one else catches fish. I manage my resource. I, I understand, you know, the times when there's a lot of fish and I don't get greedy during those times. I'll take, you know, what I need to, to you know, to be a part, to service my family and then I'll, I'll let it go. So he's the ultimate conservationist in many ways. And this is coming from a professional uh, fisherman who, whom you'd kind of the mindset is, oh, gosh, they, they just rape and pillage the oceans. But not a chance, mate. They, these guys, are, and this guy in particular, was just wired into his resource. And I thought, what a clever way to think. You know, what an awesome way to think about, you know, how much you actually need. And also, you know, even just directly in a cricket sense, I got a lot from that because there would be someone that, you know, on the opposition side that you just knew was your huckleberry. And you'd privately, for me, it was always um, Sean Pollock. And the 2007 World Cup, his name came up in the meeting. I said, boys, don't waste your time. I said, I guarantee you that Sean Pollock in this match is mine. So don't, let's not even discuss where he's at. So you know those people, and the, or in a fishing context, you know those grounds that you can take and take and take and take and take from. But you have to be smart, right? So you might go boom, boom hitting for a couple of boundaries and then get off strike <laughs> just so he stays on. Um, That's right. You can't it, completely fish it, him out. No, it's, it's, it's a death. It's, it's just too it's, – it's death by a thousand nicks in this case, you know. <laughs> it's a Chinese water torture. No, but, I mean, it's a very clever way to think. So greed, okay, so- I think, is a big part of our – of our psyche as, as, as human beings. And it doesn't – you know, it doesn't really matter which – of the securities you look at, uh, or insecurities, water, food, energy. I mean, these will be our kids, it'll be their lifeblood trying to understand, you know, where to fish and how to not overfish resources as our population explodes in the future. And we just need to keep managing what we're doing. Uh, So let's talk about food, but I want to combine this question with the fact that you've started a a podcast about food, which is called Dishy. And... So I want to talk about two things. Firstly, your relationship with food, but also the fact that you're making a podcast about it says something as well. I'm interested that you, if, if what you've said about the idea of changing the game, I imagine you take that into everything. So what is it about food, but also what is it about the podcast about food that made you interested in doing that? Um, the idea is a very old idea, Um which I, I like. See, I believe that bespoke is, is actually still the, the future. You know, like take, take, for example, the suit business. You know, you, when Hugo Boss came along, they kind of made the whole bespoke something that was commercial. Like you could go to Sydney or New York, you could get a Hugo Boss suit and it was kind of sold to you or marketed to you as it's yours. It's not yours. It's, it's, it's like an off-the-rack suit that doesn't fit. 
you know, and that this has multiple ranges and it's as cheap a product as you can possibly get, even though it's a great quality product, cheap in the sense that Hugo Boss has to commercialise it. Bespoke is when you get a tailor that that has been cutting on Seville Row for 50 years and his dad before him and his dad before him have done exactly that old school ways of thinking and they craft out and, and hand pick these particular you know fabrics and fibres that are going to be yours forever. That's bespoke. So when you look at it from any sense, I, I believe you know something like the food element is old school like when we spoke the other day you were coming to the table of of Hados, you know with an open book you, you were bringing the wine the cheeses and the desserts and you know i was open to the idea that you know i could bring and thread together you know the the main sort of course through its narration and there was a great value in that conversation which which was just very open and very explorative um, and very organic, you know. So the idea around that is is organic relationships. Um, and everyone, like, that I've spoke to is, is just – I just knew the whole thing would just work. You know, it's just – it's just too easy. Like it's something that we've been doing as a as a um, connection in humanity f- since we could say hello without having our uh, eight feet on. Um, it, it's communal. It's it's the connection around food. It's the purpose around food, and everyone's got a story, and it's not just a story. It's like a personal. It's a personal piece of their history. And even before that, it was probably their family's history. You know, if you go back in time, you know, food follows bloodlines and it follows tradition and history, and it's so cool. It's bespoke to that individual. Um, so, I mean, that's that, I'm passionate about that. It's it's something. I mean, when you ask the question why food, well, I mean, it's obvious. I'm 110 kilos, and I absolutely <laughs> love eating. Um, <laughs> And oftentimes it's just fuel because I love training as well. Like it's just, it's the cycle of my life and, and my family's life as well. Every night we will sit down together as a family and sometimes there won't be great conversation, but it doesn't really matter because you just, even if it's 30 minutes, like my son last night was saying, dad, it's every night. It's taking for ages. I said, yeah, exactly. They said, what's the big deal? What else do you want to be doing? <laughs> so I suppose, I suppose it'll be a bit frustrating at times, but, I mean, just that, that basic connection of how's your day? Well, the podcast, you know, this year is all about, well, how's your life? You know, what, what does that look like? You know, Maggie Beer, for example, who, who I'm doing today in the podcast, I mean, what a great story. I mean, this is a lady that was brought up in the suburbs of Sydney that, that has just, ever since she was knee-high to a grasshopper, had, had the understanding that food was something that she just did. It wasn't a competition. It was just a love, you know. So a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the recent food um, content in this space has been around that sort of critical competition. And it's, mm-hmm. for me, it's never really – I've never aligned to that because I, I just love – the whole purpose around the connection and the conversation that flows, the larrikins like yourself that, you know, join, join in on that conversation. I mean, 
you don't strike me as a naturally passionate foodie, but but in essence, maybe the show kind of made you think. Well, actually, you know, I've got a really unique story here around my you know vegetarianism and and you know how that works with in relationship to my wife and where you know where she's at and. I just, it's so cool, man. I just love doing it. Okay. So um, there must be a food memory because you ask about this, you know, what your favorite food memory is. I'd love to know in reverse what yours is. Is there one in particular that comes to mind? Yeah, I've got so many. eh? Look, um, as I said, I've got so many. So something that comes to mind is that um, every winter, my my grandma and my granddad were we'd drive them down because they were of an age where they couldn't really sort of get about. We'd drive their caravan and set it up down in Scarness um, Caravan Park in Harvey Bay and, and we'd take family holiday there and, um, and and fish fish in that particular area was just abundant. We owned this little 16C Haynes Hunter. It was the same boat actually that Simo and I crashed over in the bar that time um, at Christmas in 99. And my brother and I, um, would just disappear for a week. And I'm not even kidding. Like, I would have been 13, maybe even less, 12, and my brother five years older than me at that age, and, and we'd just go off in this boat and we would live. We would take a saucepan. We'd take matches. Uh, we'd take uh, some some water and some juice, like those combination. We'd take a couple lots of cereal, no milk because it would go off. We didn't have ice. Um, and, and we'd mostly spend time in this place called Moon Creek over at, over at Fraser Island. Now, Moon Creek is a is – a, uh, it's, a, it's one of the sort of the estuarine systems about midway up the island. And at the base of this, this uh, inlet of this creek, beautiful – clear blue water like a magic you know turquoise colored water was this massive big tree and from this tree that was like our supermarket like it'd be literally because we'd have all our diving gear and stuff we'd literally go down put our hands over the eyes point the spear gun shoot into the tree and and, oh mangrove jack you know like we just had we just had so much time because that was just this, that was the grocery store right there. And then the rest of the day we'd be off like, you know, spearing mud crabs or walking the flats and getting sand crabs. We'd just have this buffet every night around a fire and we were totally self-dependent, you know. like So those memories where you're just creating something out of nothing was – was they're, they're the stuff that, you know, I, I hope that, you know, I'm going to give all of our kids as well just that capacity to just turn – nothing into something um or even if you're just farming it to turn something farmed into something and then the connections through it like the other day i rang up the boys uh, over in wa and i said has anyone got any um contacts in the truffle business and uh justin langer said yeah mate you sat on the board with with wally edwards who owns the western australia truffle and wine company why don't you give him a bell so I did. <laughs> and, and before I knew it, I had a kilo of truffles because every restaurant in Australia is just about closed down. So he said, mate, I've got that many truffles here. Just I'll send you over a couple you can have a try. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that'd be good, Wally. Thanks, mate. And these truffles, mate, they were just, oh, my God. Like I had them in my office here and it was embarrassing when I was having, you know, clients out because I'd open the fridge and the, 
all of a sudden these truffles would like permeate in it. It's like, man, what is that smell? Like, like there's truffles, there's bread, fresh made bread, and there's fresh coffee. Like those three scents, um, you know, they just permeate anywhere, you know. And and when I'm talking about breads, I'm talking about all breads, like the flatbreads of India. Or those beautiful French sticks, you know, through through France or in Tuscany, you know, just how they sort of use bread as that symbol around dipping into olive oils and olives and oh, I mean, I'm just getting hungry, salivating as as we speak. But um, food is about the connection, and it's about you know, it's about the people around the food, it's about the regions, uh, and most of all, it's about the sharing element of it is is something that I'm just so passionate about. And if you can make something out of nothing, then that's well played, son. <laughs> so, so uh, like, I mean, I'm sure you get asked this a lot. And again, it might be like naming your, you know, favourite kid. But do you have a favourite cricket memory? Is there one that stands out from your career where you, you think about it would be your favourite? Yeah. Um, again, it's it's a little bit like food, but it, it's 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 something that I sort of straight away comes to my mind is... is uh, the test match where Andrew Simons made his maiden test match under it. And, oh, that and Andrew Simons in Brisbane the one day when he smashed that streaker and I was batting with him at the time, which was just, <laughs> that's like next level, you know. Like, And it was also very typical of our relationship. Like I'd go fishing with Simo all day and Kel, my wife, would, would ask, well, what did you guys talk about? And I said, well, we didn't. He said, what do you mean? You are fishing for like 12 hours. Like surely you got something to say. I said, Baby, why would we want to talk? It's like there's nothing really to say apart from get me a beer or can you throw us a pilly or, you know, something like that. It's time to pull the anchor up. That was it. <laughs> so so in the middle when he hit that streak of Simo, I, I went up to him because he was at the non-striker's end. Um, I went up to him and I said, geez, you got him, didn't you? And he went, yeah, I got him. That was it. <laughs> Man, I would have been, I would have been high fiving everyone on the planet if I smashed someone as bad as that. Oh, but I suppose you know when you got, and he got in a lot of trouble though, like over that, and and um, you know the cricket show really wanted to throw the book at him over that, and he just said, listen, I mean if he, if in his defence he just said, look, if a bloke's running at you at full tilt, like seriously, like if he's capable of doing that, what else is he capable of doing? So I just defended myself. What's wrong with that? <laughs> anyway, so getting back to the moment, like Melbourne cricket ground, um, we were in deep trouble. We were four for not many. And Simo comes in and he was, aw- he was awful for the first 20 minutes. He took him forever to get off strike. He was so nervous because he was really under pressure. Like everyone was kind of like calling for his head. So it was sort of that moment, you know. And Kevin Peterson, he smelt a rat. You know, he was just all over him like a cheap suit, like one of Stephen Ward's suits, actually. And he's, he, he came up to him and he, and he, was, he was in his ear and he, Simo said, look, mate, just because you've got tough stickers on your arm doesn't mean you're tough. So if you want to take this somewhere else, I'm very happy to uh, participate. You know, and of course Kevin Peterson, he had he had that uh, those three lions, you know. And he said, "By the way, mate, he says, it's not even your country, so f off." <laughs> <laughs> he was so quick like that, Simo. You know, it was brilliant. But he but he battered the house down, you know, and and 
you know, f- from just seeing Andrew's growth, um, you know, being a being a part of that journey for him, and then to see that that moment climax, you know, in front of a huge Boxing Day Test match crowd, England play Australia, really got us out of the poop. Um, and, you know, we went on to just smash England in that test match. But it just, to get that, that moment where, you know, he just ran off, you know, into the abyss towards Bay 13 and then turned and there's this great photo where Simo jumps on my shoulders and he's, he's a big unit, Simo. And he, the helmet actually like pressed down on top, and I and I cut my head open. I started I started bleeding from the from the weight of Simo like crushing down on top of my helmet. But I mean, I was just so happy, you know, like just just seeing all of that play out, like knowing his family well, being a part of his life on and off the field, being a part of his cricketing um, uh, prowess and skill sets. I, I think in a moment that kind of like sort of wraps up just the elation of just a moment in time that you can just never, ever replace. He'll, he'll never forget that moment. And I certainly, you know, just revel in all that. Um, yeah, so, so look, it's very hard to sort of go back in time when you look at certain key significant moments, like even just that catch that Carl Rackerman, you know, was under in the 94-95 Sheffield Shore final. You know, Paul Jackson, unexpected hero of the day in the second innings, and here we are beating Adelaide, uh, South Australia, to to win, you know, the first trophy ever for Queensland. I mean, it's something that is just an extraordinary um, set of circumstances that led up to that um, three, four years in the making preparation. So much sort of had to change and shift within Queensland cricket to get rid of that sort of monkey off the back and then to see the elation of Queensland people, you know, as that, as that Sheffield chill kind of like travelled all over from Thargaminda to bloody, you know, far north Queensland. Um, you know, I remember going up to Ingham with it and seeing Tina Arena in concert in Ingham. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's classic, eh? It's just, you know, there's just these extraordinary connections that you just never would have realised, you know, um, and you certainly probably would have fought a lot harder for to get it earlier if, if you knew that that's how people were going to feel, you know. Growing old men of that have past players, like, crying in the dressing room and, you know, just... Uh, it was just bre- just gold moments, though. Gold moments. It's incredible that you've, you know, played over 100 test matches, you've made over 30 test hundreds and you held the world record for the most runs ever in a test match and all the examples that you've, you know, spoken about are other people's triumphant moments, which I think probably says something very much about the way that you view life and, you know, that the the celebration of others is as important as the celebration of yourself. (laughs) Well, the 380 was just a joke, really, like... You know, when I look back at that time, I was over at North Stradbroke Island. We, it was the early, it was there's never been a Test match in Perth played as early as October. Your first Test match usually, you know, starts here at the Gabba in the second week in November. So, I'd been over at North Stradbroke Island for about eight weeks. We had a really long break, and I was so fit, Will, like just <laughs> impossibly fit. When I look back at some of the things that I was doing. Like, I'd run up to the point, which was about 12 and a half, 13 K, do 20 sandhills at pace and then run back. You know, it's like, I was just crazy fit. But I hadn't hit a cricket ball in anger for, like, 
eight weeks. And so um, John Buchanan called it early. He said, look, we've got to get over and start hitting cricket balls. And, of course, you know, I loved hitting cricket balls. Punter and I just loved smashing a million cricket balls. And I did my back badly. I couldn't. It was the morning, the morning of the, the, the start of that test match. And Errol Orcott, the physio, came up to me and he said, mate, you can't play. I said, Errol, I said, your job is to get me playing. Yeah. My job is to play. Don't tell me I can't play. I'm playing. It's just as simple as that. <laughs> and he sort of winked at me, said, okay, well, we'll do a fitness test. I said, yeah, we can do a fitness test, mate. But at the end of that fitness test, there'll be a very large green tick beside the box. <laughs> Because there is nothing going to stop me from playing this game. So we did this little sort of dog shit uh, fitness test where I ran a bit of this and ran a bit of that, balanced on one leg, touched my head, touched my nose, whatever they do, you know, the test you. And he said, yep, you're playing. I said, thank you, Errol. <laughs> but I had a really, I had a really sore back. And, and in short, I couldn't move. Um, so when I look back at that innings, the only reason why I even set up the way that I did was that I basically just had a hitting position and that's it. And I learned a lot from that test match because in essence, that's kind of like set the platform for modern day hitting techniques in T20 cricket, where you just set your feet and hit through the line of the ball. Well, on that day, it was just that really. I mean, it was that for 11 hours. It just I just didn't look back really. It wasn't it wasn't something I consciously set out to achieve. In fact, Stephen came to me um, just before I got out, tea time on the second day, and he said, mate, get 400. And I said, Tugger, like, this is so embarrassing, mate. You know, like, we've got more runs than we need for the 10 innings that we're going to play Zimbabwe. Like, let's just, just declare and let's get on with it and win the test match so that we can have... Go goes lamb shanks, and <laughs> this 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 Indian this Indian restaurateur would come in at the end of every Perth Test match, and he'd serve up these lamb shanks that he'd been stewing, you know, for for about three days, and they were just oh, they were like butter. And then we'd also get an abalone and um, and a uh, a crayfish farmer that would deliver boxes of these crayfish, like. I didn't want to delay that another second. So for God's sake, Stephen, just <laughs> declare. <laughs> <laughs> but in hindsight, he was right, wasn't he, as usual with Tugger? Mm. I should have got 400 because then it would have been just, you know, un- it, was, you know it was probably an unmountable token anyway. But, you know, it certainly doesn't take priority in my, in my list of, of, of any impact, really, on the game. It, much more, as you say, is around these great warriors that that in combination were just extraordinary. It was just an extraordinary team, you know. I just have so much respect for for their personalities. I don't, I don't know if you've watched, the, you know, the, the little doco with the test. I haven't yet, but yeah. in many ways I don't have to because I just have – I just know what Justin Langer will bring to the table of, of Australian cricket. It's just so obvious. And, and he could be replaced with – you know, three or four other of those legends within that era that could and that could equally, you know, do, do a great job. You know, just such good people, good characters. 
you know, and great Australians. Uh, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I've got a few more questions that I always ask before we finish up. Um, so I, we started with this, and I think that it'll be interesting to hear what you say in response to it, because um, what do you think happens when we die? Huh. Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I, I don't know if we ever do. Um, you know, like when I look at people that I've that have had significant influence in my life, like my grandma, for example. Grandma's spirit every day is like right there. So is she really dead? You know, I, I when I make my doughboys, for example, like I made this rabbit stew the other day. I went up to Kingaroy and my son and I, youngest son and I, went hunting and. We got a couple of kangaroos and four or five hares and rabbits. So there was quite a lot of, of livestock, you know, out, out on the property. So, um, you know, we dressed up this rabbit and made rabbit stew, did it all day and um, sautéed it in some onion and garlic and some bacon just to sort of brown off in this casserole dish. And then I browned the rabbit, coated in flour and salt and pepper and... Um, just browned it off in the pan and then put it into a casserole dish, filled it up with, you know, beautiful, um, beautiful stock and let it sit there all day with truckloads of vegetables, fresh vegetables. Mate, that, in that moment, when I, when I got that casserole dish out and then I started making dough balls, which was just self-raising flour, which I crumbed um, with butter and, it's, and then you just add water and parsley. It's like grandma was speaking to me in that moment because I can remember being Tommy's age, sitting watching, not doing, just watching grandma as she did that. And it was the exact flavour of her dough balls because it was her life. You know, a country, proud countrywoman um, supporting her husband, you know, who, who was, a, you know, one of the first... Uh, Australians to clear and contour uh, the country, his country, his his father's country. I mean, mate, do we ever die? Like, I, I mean, we certainly live on in spirit anyway, put it that way. And when you think of the – and that's why I always say, you know, it's don't worry about what you do, just make impact. You know, people remember impact. Grandma's impact was, and it doesn't have to be big things, that was a simple impact. That was something that, that Tommy, I wonder, when I'm long gone, will think, geez, remember that time? I had the same conversation with a mate of his sitting around having a beer around a campfire as they've probably gone off hunting in the bush and boom, there's his, there's his, there's his meal for the night and he'll tell a story about how his old man, you know, taught him how to do dumplings. You know, I, I don't... I think we we live on in our spirit, and I do believe in in a in a place a sanctuary, where where I can meet up with with family and friends in the in the future. You know, I do believe in a heaven. I don't know if I believe in a hell, but I definitely believe in somewhere where your spirit is harvested and, and harnessed. If um, there's an epitaph to you know. Matthew Hayden's life. I mean, obviously, on the Wikipedia page, it's always going to lead with your achievements in the game of cricket. But in, when when there's when people speak about you after you're gone at some stage, what do you hope that they will say about you? I'm mixed between sort of 
a mix between commenting on what they'll say about me or how they'll think about me. Um, mate, I hope it's as simple as that. You know, he's a half decent bloke that, um, you know, just had a go. You know, just, just sort of, just lived his, lived his, lived his passions. You know, and 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 was committed to his to his to his family and and to his to his mates. Um, I don't think there needs to be a big song and dance about all of it. You know, I think the runs are on the board, meaning that you know you just rather than talk a good game, you just you just have your actions, and those actions they speak for themselves. And maybe that's a good thing, you know. His actions just spoke for themselves. That'd be a good thing to say, I reckon. Um, and just leave, what are you, leave, what are you, leave it like that. What are you best at? What are you best at? What's your talking what is absolute the shit? <laughs> yeah, you're not bad at that. Well, I'm very good at that. So <laughs> you, you might have <laughs> might have come to the wrong place to leave with that one. Uh, no, what what has made you the success that you have been? What is what has it been in particular that has made you successful at what you've chosen to do? Uh, I think just an unrelenting, um, unrelenting uh, commitment to just just giving it your best shot, you know, whatever it is, you know, just having a sense of, of strong commitment to your purpose, um, you know, which is really in, in and around that higher purpose, you know, for mine, it's, it's, it's caring, it's giving back, it's, it's enjoying, you know, and being grateful for what you have. Um, I think being, you know, that commitment and that gratitude um, has kind of like, you know, been a big part of why, like, you know, people say, say, oh, geez, those years must have been hard. Well, no, they weren't actually. <laughs> Great fun. And the challenge of actually trying to get better every day was something that I just, I'd never replace, you know, like there have been so few people, you know, just over 400 people that have played for Australia. You know, there have been so few people that have even thought about the possibility of putting a bag of green on their head. You know, there are so few people, you know, after cricket that think of the way that I do around around organisational purpose and, and also, you know, trying to create solutions for things like, you know, the Indigenous project that I've been, you know, supporting for the last 13 years with blood, sweat and tears, you know. It's still today like a start-up, but we're transforming and changing kids' lives, you know. that. I mean, I, I just just always sort of that, that, that kind of, you know, quest to just... Be in the, be in your mind, be in your life. You know, just be present in your life and have a dip. Not to mention the recreational stuff. You know, that I just love. Like, mate, getting outside. I don't care when it is, but having a deep, like one of the great things about cricket was every day I had a deep relationship to the ground. Like my ground, the ground actually depended on it. So when everyone says you've seemed quite grounded, well, yeah, no shit, because I spent with bare feet. I love an office rule here that we we don't wear shoes. You know, I, I love the fact that your two feet can touch the ground, and if they touch a surfboard, well, that's another way to be grounded. You know, touch a boat and the surface of a boat, beautiful. Here we are again. You know, so I had this great relationship with the earth ever since I was tiny, um, and since then I've been cultivating stuff from it in some harvesting it in some way. It doesn't have to be food or anything. They're just harvesting that that emotion that collects around the ground and, and that support that you have under your feet. You know, it's like a certainty. It's like a, a navigational beacon that just throws the anchor out. The only time you ever struggle on the sea is when you've got a shitty anchor. 
If you don't know where you are at night, it's the most frightening place on the planet. The moment you put your anchor out, man, you, you know, sleep well. <laughs> you know where you are the next morning. Hey, Doss, I'm trying to finish up this podcast, but you keep raising things that I really <laughs> want to talk to you about. Can I quickly just, can we go back to the Indigenous connection? Because one of the things that I'm incredibly passionate about is, you know, the relationship that Australia has with, you know, the first peoples of this land and how mm. troubled it's been, but how, again... And I think this goes to a lot of what you're saying about philosophy is that the mistakes that have been made have been made. All we can do now is work in a way to rectify those mistakes and come to a better understanding of the original people and also, you know, to help rectify the situations that there are. So you're obviously doing something about that yourself. Can you quickly tell me a little bit about that and why you're so passionate about that? Yeah, well, I think... Um, um yeah, we've we've got a project that's that's called Jimmy Jimmy Cadets Program. Um, it's an acronym for um, Junior Indigenous Marine and Environmental Cadets Program. Um, it's a mouthful. Um, but what why I'm passionate about it is that I think everyone runs towards a problem, um, and annually every year the Australian government spends twenty two billion dollars on on this particular um, issue. And as white Australian, I'm embarrassed by the amount of racism that exists, not just to, not just to the amount of uh, uh, minority populations, um, but to our first Australians. It's, it's embarrassing. And they have got some of the great lessons that we can learn. Like connection to country is something that has run all the way through this podcast. And now when you talk to a, to a young um, Indigenous boy or girl, one of the things that they love so much and have a real connect, heart connect to is this sense of home, coming home. We all have it, right? But when you've had 60,000 years of it, it's next level commitment. And, and it may not be at their forefront, but they're discovering what that, that looks like so you know our solution was about trying to um in a youth development pathways is how you'd kind of like corporatize the word but in essence it's just giving kids a go in country on country and it's a whole lot easier where our programs are running which are primarily in cairns and um, the tiwi islands off the coast of darwin it's a bunch easier telling kids to turn up on a boat get their coxswain's license and be fishing guides or take Dreamtime tours, you know, if out of Cairns to the Great Barrier Reef in country on country and tell their stories and, and, and commemorate their stories in tradition, song and dance and music and just life, their life. They just love it and they just are so committed to doing it. And the benefit then to, you know, commercial partners that are running operations up there, either, either local Aboriginal uh, operations or or other just tourism operators that are giving kids an opportunity, the model just fits. It just works. And it's not a problem. It's just a great solution. And the kids are just... I mean, we started in the Tiwis because it was a desperate situation. You know, we had one kid of the population of 2,500 kids that was employed under the age of 21. Mate, it doesn't matter what the colour of your skin is. An idle mind is a dangerous mind. 
if you haven't got that purpose piece in your life, mate, you, you just you just have got an opportunity to, to start to make choices which are not in the right direction. Simple. Much easier, though, to start doing the right thing. And so, you know, with Jimmy um, Cadet's program, it's just, it's just, in a fishing terminology, it's matching the hatch. Like you can tell a, you can tell um, a fish to do a lot of things, but you can't tell it how to eat. <laughs> you know, it's, it just, it will, it will eat what it wants to eat. And I think, you know, it's the same as a dog. Like you can yell out in French to a dog if it only understands English. Well, it's only going to, and the word is sit. It's going to sit when it's you say that. So there's a great benefit in actually just being solution focused and going, guys, here's some of the project overview. Like here's some of the ways that we can engage. And our piece within this is just to, to ensure that there's enough fundraising. Every one of our cadets costs $7,000 a year. At the back end of that, they'll have certifications and 100% employment coming out of our program. 100%. That's exciting, Will. That That's you know, for me, as as a co-founder of the project, when we started off, um, it being focused around a, a garden model, which was sort of similar, it became kind of like the epicenter of the health of the project, where kids were coming to our garden in a college, growing their own produce, taking it home to their families, creating a healthier, active eating environment for them, an ecosystem, and therefore getting better learning outcomes. To now, like letting and partnering schools and, and TAFEs and, and letting them get that education piece solid and, and in the right direction and then matching the hatch in terms of opportunities post those, those particular uh, courses and, 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 and vet um, communities and just letting these kids grow what has been taken away and that's that deep sense of self-esteem, which... You know, if you love yourself, mate, you've got a whole bunch more chance to love everyone else. If you don't, it's trouble at every level. So that self-esteem is, is something that, in essence, this program just captures and just goes, guys, here's the support you need. Now run like a Brumby towards where you want to go in your life, in country and on country. It's gold, mate. Gold. That's a, it's amazing. Thank you for that, mate. I uh, have loved this chat so much. It's just been so nice to, you know, have this face-to-face with you. And it is amazing that we live in a world now where we can do this. And, you know, I like to think that we are making a little bespoke suit of our own here today and having a conversation, hopefully, that is, you know, it can't be replicated and you can't just get it off the shelf. It's, you know, a connection between two people that I hope, you know, the people who are listening to this will get an appreciation of. But uh, I have two questions to finish and they're very quick. Uh, First one is, uh, I've got a magic wand and you can have any skill in the world. So any skill in the world, you can be as good as you were at, uh, you know, playing cricket. You can be as good as this. You don't have to do the work. Don't have to do your 10,000 hours. I'm just going to give you this skill. What skill would you love to have? Oh, man. These are tough questions, Will. Seriously. (laughs) I think something on the ocean, though, for me, like, I, I can surf and, I, and I'm a very competent surfer, but, you know, when it gets to sort of like eight, ten foot, and I'm talking about waves like, um, uh, well, Chopu's probably the, the, the one, that, that little place, you know, where it's just that, that 
that wave just like arcs over and you just see this big hollow section ahead of you and it's breaking on nothing. I'd love to be able to have a skill to be able to take that on. That'd, that'd be, that's a whole lifetime that you need to actually reward yourself to take on that out of respect for those that do. Um, but yeah, that, that spirit of the ocean, that person, that, that ultimate waterman, I reckon would be you know, right up there on my list of potential like I'd love to have skills, yeah. And uh, last but not least, uh, I have a time machine. I don't, by the way. I need to point that out for the legal reasons. <laughs> but I have a time machine. I can take you back to any point in history. I can take you to any point in the future. I can take yeah. you to a moment in your own life or just a moment that you want to change or a moment you want to observe. It doesn't matter. It, like, it is a total indulgence on your behalf. Mm. Um, but where would you like to go if you had a trip on a time machine? <laughs> these are great hypothetical questions Jeez. Um, just because it's topical um, yeah, the time when the time when humanity realized that um, the war was over amnesty was amnesty was completed and you know back in sort of like um, 1918 Life was simple. Life was life was about survival at that point. I reckon it'd be very cool to just understand. You know, when you see the elation of people in the streets, that relief of having um, loved ones around them, or that desperation where that knowing that sons and daughters are not coming home, I just think those times would have been really interesting um, to, to to just be a part of. To to understand that you, you know you're a person within yourself that that is designed to make a difference and make an impact, like you can't get a more poignant moment in history than than the conclusion of of periods of of unsettled rest and 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 war. I reckon it'd be yeah, it'd be fascinating anyway. Put it that way. Mate, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, it's a little bit longer than your podcast. I highly <laughs> recommend that people uh, listen to Dishy, though. It's a really excellent... I, I really enjoy doing it. And I'll do proper plugs at the start because I don't... Look, I like to think that everybody makes it to the end of the podcast, but just in case they don't all make it right till the end of the podcast, I'll make sure plugs at the start. <laughs> no, nah, mate, this has been brilliant. I, I genuinely appreciate you taking all this time for me nah, today no worries, and, well. and for the audience great, mate great, great pleasure mate no worries at all and let's hope it recorded yeah jeez <laughs> <laughs>